0: Running is a way to get more connected to our own bodies and also each other. Johnji aims to explore, connect, and give back by crafting comfortable, responsibly produced running apparel, guided by the places we run and the people we meet. And because Johnji works with artists and communities globally, they identify and partner directly with local water nonprofits working on clean water solutions with each new country their collections pay tribute to. Learn more at johnji.com. And stay tuned for later in this episode, when we share how you can get 15% off your next order of Janji. I have heard the mermaids singing, each to each. I do not think that they will sing to me. I have seen them riding seaward on the waves, combing the white hair of the waves blown back when the wind blows the water white and black. We have lingered in the chambers of the sea, by sea girls wreathed with seaweed red and brown, till human voices wake us, and we drown. British poet T.S. Eliot wrote those famous words in the early 1900s. And it's just one of the many, many places we can find fantastical stories about mermaids. In fact, the amount of poems, movies, and oral histories we have worldwide Have kept the myth of mermaids alive for generations. And with all the romance, lust, mystery, and occasional danger folded into nearly every mermaid tale, it's somewhat easy to explain our fixation on these characters. In fact, there seems to be a socially perpetuated allure to their beauty and femininity. And although enchanting, where these stories ensnare us all is how one-dimensional they can sometimes be, especially when we have so often not looked past surface-level mermaid archetypes to explore these mythological creatures at greater depths. And when it comes to sex outside, it didn't take much searching to realize just how much there actually is to unpack, from hypersexualization historically and present day, to body image expectations in these characters, to hyperfeminization and gender norms as a whole. In short, there are a lot of ways that mermaids and merfolk as a whole have been confined to specific, prescribed imagery and stories. And often what gets left out of the mix is that there are a lot of ways that mermaids have not only evolved over time in the past, but are currently expanding their own worlds, too. And yes, we know, mermaids are not currently considered a part of scientific ecology. But they still impact our world all the same. The stories we tell one another, the way we create and uphold beauty standards, the way we underline gender and heteronormativity. So it pays to look a little more closely at mermaids and ask why we have generally kept them bound to specific narratives. And because of the rich history and folklore surrounding these well-known creatures we have to look at both to see where we've been and where we're going in order to truly understand how the beliefs we've accepted about mermaids for so long might actually have reflections into more of our tangible lives than we'd like to admit and i'll tell you right now we're not going to cover it all because the world of mermaids is truly as vast as the ocean itself but this is a good place to start and if nothing else I hope this episode gives you some insight, perspective, and motivation to interrogate some of the assumptions we've been taught around popular characters and the archetypes we've consistently put onto them. Because as we all know, more often than not, there's so much more than what the surface holds. So, it's time to dive in. You ready? I'm Laura Brashevsky, and this is Sex Outside.
1: When you think about it, no two fish in the ocean are the same, and mermaids are technically part of two worlds, ocean and land. You're not quite sure where you kind of belong in, but you are this creature that embodies the harmony between both.
0: Now, as you could safely assume, I'm not a mermaid expert. So to start out, it felt important to find someone who could help create some historical context around these creatures. And fortunately, I found just the right person.
2: Yeah, very cool. Yeah. As soon as I got your email, I'm like, yeah, this is my groove. You know, it's like folklore and sexuality and and psychology and culture. It's just uh, it's just so cool.
0: Ben Radford is a folklorist, historian and writer who also happens to have his own podcast on mythological creatures called Squaring the Strange. And Ben gives us a great primer on where the myth of the mermaid, in general, originated from.
2: You have to look at them in context. And the context is that, you know, humans have always been fascinated by the boundaries between humans and other animals. And so this is where you get the mythologies of werewolves, people who turn into wolves. And, by the way, there were also were-rabbits, (laughs) were-cows. There are many were-animals. And among them was, of course, animals that were either half fish uh, or half bird or what have you. And then that also sort of engendered lots of stories and myths about what might be out there. Because keep in mind that, you know, thousands of years ago, certainly hundreds of years ago, much of the world was, uh, was terra incognita. People lived and died often within, you know, a couple hundred miles of where they were born. And so there was no internet, of course, there was no way to know what's going on in foreign lands. And so uh, throughout uh, much of human history, there was this vacuum of knowledge about, you know, what is out there? What is in the oceans? What is on other continents? And so the information they had was often brought by travelers and traders. So you would have people who would, you know, were gathering uh, skins or jewels or spices in foreign lands. And as part of their job, they would travel. And along with traveling, they would tell stories. And sometimes those stories were based on <laughs> on fact. Oftentimes, there were these sort of embellished stories of, you know, there be dragons, right? There were stories of things in other foreign distant lands. And in the case of mermaids specifically, these oftentimes, of course, came up from fishing villages because You know, you would have uh, people would go out to sea sometimes for hours, days and longer. And when they're out to sea for long periods of time, catching fish, whatever, you you know, they would come back and, you know, they would have the catch. But they would sometimes tell stories of odd things they had seen in the sea. And so you can see how that might sort of spawn some of these early myths.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you're going to go out and spend all that time fishing, it's nice to come back with a story. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> if nothing else, right? If nothing else is the one that got away, but there's an even deeper level here because oftentimes you would find that fishing communities specifically tend to be very superstitious in a way that, for example, farming communities aren't. Partly because fishing communities they are much more dependent on literally life and death of the sea and stormy weather, it swells, and you know, fishing is a dangerous business and always has been and certainly was. Back when we didn't have g p s and coast guards to rescue people, and so oftentimes fishermen in fishing villages and communities would be very superstitious as they would they perform certain rituals before they went out to sea to appease the gods to try and bring some luck to them. I did some research into labyrinths, and there were stories of fishermen who would walk a labyrinth before going out to sea because the idea was that. If there were any evil spirits following them, they would be trapped in the labyrinth, and they would rush out of the labyrinth and out to sea before the evil could follow them. So there's oftentimes been a tradition or a sense that mermaids were associated with fate, and in some cases, death and evil. But then later on, you also see these other versions where mermaids were also alluring and sexual, and so there's this really fascinating dichotomy there.
0: Yeah, well, and how mermaids as mythological creatures hold both of those, like sometimes within the same character and then, yeah, sometimes on these opposite or, you know, different ends as well. It it really is interesting.
2: Yeah, I mean, so you have these figures that are associated with misfortune and death. And at the same time, there are these alluring, beautiful women. A lot of people focus on mermaids, but of course there's also mermen. But, you know, typically these days when you see cultural representations of mermaids, They're either sort of sexualized or they're the stuff of children's stories, right? So you have the the sort of dichotomous Disney-fied version of The Little Mermaid, or you have more sort of what folklorists might call more traditional stories of, in some cases, alleged eyewitness accounts of mermaids and and, even meeting them and in some cases marrying them, (laughs) depending on who you talk to.
1: Hey everybody! I go by Nymphia the Nautilus Mermaid, but my real name is Gabrielle Rivera, and I am a professional mermaid based in Oakland, California, within the Bay Area itself.
0: Speaking of meeting mermaids, let's jump ahead to present day for a minute. Gabrielle Rivera, who also goes by Nymphia the Nautilus Mermaid, is a professional mermaid based on the West Coast. And although we fully recognize that the folklore of mermaids originated from fisherman myths, the reality is that so much has evolved since then. In fact, for decades, there's been a culture around what Gabrielle refers to as mermaiding, which for Gabrielle looks like taking on the role of a mermaid firsthand by being one professionally in her own community.
1: Before I started mermaiding, once upon a time when I was in my early years of college, I used to be in the cosplay community. So I have a very big passion in costume design, and I studied fashion design when I was in college. And one of the things that I really wanted to try to do was to make a mermaid tail for a costume. You can probably guess who it was, given cosplay. So I was looking around trying to get inspiration for this aerial costume that i have been wanting to make. And lo and behold, I stumbled upon this forum online called Mer Network, which I don't think is in much use nowadays, since I know it's kind of gravitated toward other formats of social media. But. Mer Network was like the be all end all place for like mermaid community news, mermaid community tutorials for like tail making and such, how to make a living being a professional mermaid and just kind of things that are always being updated and just news and stuff in general. And from there, I just kind of got hooked and I just started looking more into the community itself. I started swimming more locally in pools and such. But I don't think I ever got into like the professional scene until years later. When I started and I broke the news to my family that I really wanted to try this new outlet for like being a professional mermaid, my mom was actually the one who suggested turning it into a business. So my mom, my dad, and me, we all kind of sat around in a circle in the house. And every couple of weeks, we would have like these little business meetings and trying to plan everything out leading into the grand unveiling, if you will. So in that time, I kind of got a good solid business plan going. I got the silicone tail started. My family had helped pitch in for like trying to get that silicone tail made. I got in touch with a lot of people. And then my first gig that I ever performed pre-silicone tail was at a Renaissance fair in San Diego, which I was living at at the time. And from there, I got in touch with a lot of people I met A really famous mermaid from Las Vegas named uh, Alicia Moore. I got in touch with one of our local groups in San Diego called the OB Merpod. And then from there, I started accompanying them to a lot of their events as their aerial, if you will. Because I love to sing and I love interacting with children. So getting that kind of experience in the door was a lot of fun for me. And I can actually confidently say that I did a performance on a pirate ship through this whole thing. That just blew my mind. I didn't think that it would ever be possible, but I was literally sitting under an awning with all of these mermaids here, and we were stationed on the, the Star of India, which is an actual replica ship. Getting to like be on board the, the ship and getting to see all the facets and stuff was really, really cool. And then from there, I just kind of got hooked and tried to immerse myself into the professional scene as much as I was able to.
0: And as she got more and more hooked by the mermaiding industry, Gabrielle became closer to mermaids, not just as a character, a myth, or a social construct in our society, but it also was something that helped her to expand in a deeply personal way, especially when it comes to gender identity and sexuality.
1: Oh gosh, I mean, it's very much a transformative kind of experience. For me personally, at the time when I started mermaiding, I hadn't officially come out as being transgender or getting into my own gender identity, and I just kind of cross-dressed for fun in regards to like cosplay and such. So I feel like because of mermaiding and because of the way that it translates my own femininity, I think it really made such a difference because it was like I feel at my most feminine when I'm in full costume. so wig, makeup, hair, mermaid top, mermaid tail or even like if I'm wearing like a one of the land versions of my character's costumes. I truly feel like I'm at my most feminine and I think that in itself is really wonderful because it really shows that a passion that you love and a passion that you have wanted to try to get into for many many years it truly transforms you from the inside out and I think in that sense it really has brought me joy in that regard but another thing as far as like another joy if you will is I have a very big passion for storytelling so getting to share the stories of like my mermaid character's adventures and trying to share that with children, especially. So who may be like, oh my God, this is the first time I've ever met a mermaid before. I have so many questions I want to ask them. So when they come to me and they ask me all of these questions, I try my best to try to act in character, play along with them and just be this not ideal mermaid, but my own variation of a mermaid that maybe I didn't really get to see growing up. And then, of course, having an aquatics background, I love being in the water and just that feeling of just feeling submerged in the water with your tail, swimming along, whether it be in a pool or in the open ocean. It just gives you this overwhelming sense of peace and this overwhelming sense of tranquility that, I mean, like to put it in the words of one of my mer mentors, if you will, that the outside world is just so noisy and being underwater, and once you slip beneath the surface, it's all just quiet and calm and peaceful. And that in itself just brings me just all the joy in the world.
0: The freedom to be yourself, away from the world above, and any expectations our society has created around gender and sexuality, it's something that Gabrielle finds in mermaiding. Which feels especially meaningful, because as we peel back another layer of mermaid storytelling, we often find prescriptive, heteronormative, binary gender roles that are played out and reinforced through fishermen and pirate tales alike. And this isn't specific to one country or culture. Ben points out that, worldwide, mermaids have often been the focal point of many stories that underline specific gender power dynamics.
2: There's lots of different cultural versions of mermaids. So even though the the version that we see, again, the most common one with Little Mermaid and the the Disney-fied version of the Hans Christian Andersen, Story, which by the way, if you don't know the original story, it's pretty grim. <laughs> it's not, it is not the cutesy version you see, but there's versions again in Asia, in Japan, in India, and elsewhere. So it really is a cross cultural phenomena. And it really is more interesting than people sort of maybe give it credit for. I mean, we sort of see mermaids, these sort of cute things, you know, they're on Starbucks signs and this and that. But when you do a deeper dive, pardon the pun. You really find a lot of fascinating folkloric and social and cultural aspects to it. If you can look at the Selkies, for example, which were creatures that would come out of the ocean and they would be seen as these bathing beauties. They were actually seals. Once they come upon shore, they would drop their seal skin. And the story is that passing by men, usually fishermen, would see and fall in love with these bathing beauties and they would actually steal their seal skins and that would prevent them from going back into the ocean. So again, in the Selkie traditions, there's lots of these uh, dynamics of particularly women crossing boundaries and not being able to go back because of gender dynamics.
0: So mermaids, Selkies, what about sirens? They too, being very similar to mermaids, carry gender-prescribed stories through folklore and even into popular media and movies today.
2: There isn't a hard and fast distinction, actually in folklore as you know there's lots of fuzzy boundaries and so there are very few hard and fast distinctions well this is x and this is y well in folklore and in stories and in what people believe and tell there's lots of fluidity to them and one of the parallels of course is that the sirens part of their name is they would call the story part of the legend of the sirens is that the the sirens would be out typically uh, along rocky shores And and places like that. And the idea was that fishermen who were out, again, for hours or days at a time, would sometimes hear this beautiful singing. And, you know, they would stop their fishing and they would be enchanted by this. And they would peer around trying to figure out where this beautiful singing come from. And the story is they would then see these these beautiful women uh, on a nearby shore or rocks or shoals. And they would be drawn to them. And they would steer the boat towards them to go see these beautiful, mostly naked women. But this would be, of course, their doom because what the sirens were actually doing was drawing the ship towards rocks. And the ship would be destroyed and the sailors would drown. And so there's lots of overlap between mermaids per se and sirens. So it's a bit of a blurred distinction.
0: That's really helpful. Thank you so much for sharing that. Because, yeah, I've been... Doing a little bit of my own personal reflection on where mermaids and sirens show up in the popular culture that I'm familiar with. And the only like non like super like feminine or like over sexualized representation of mermaids or sirens that I could think of off the top of my head that are in like mainstream media currently was from Pirates of the Caribbean I forget if it's like the third or the fourth movie. It's like my least favorite, actually. But there are sirens there and they're quite vicious, you know, and there is some allure to them, but they're mostly really dangerous. And I was like, wow, I can't think of another mermaid or siren that shows up in popular culture who has that like the more fatal, like dangerous side is like the forefront of the character, right? Normally it is very much wrapped up in hyper femininity and hyper sexualization.
2: Yeah, no, you you raise an interesting point, and that's again that goes back to the sort of pop culture dichotomy of them either being sort of cutesy fairy tale characters or these sexual slash dangerous characters. Another example, uh, which I don't know if you've seen or not, is the 2015 film *The Lure*. It's a Polish film, and it's set in the 1980s. It's like this horror musical thing. Uh, it's about these two mermaids who they're caught off the coast in Europe and they end up performing in a nightclub. And it's really interesting because it, it combines this sort of feminist thing, it combines these mermaids, and it actually has attempts at mermaid sex. Uh, so you have uh, one of the characters falls in love with the man and gives up her tail. So giving up the part that anchors her to the ocean and loses her voice in the process because, again, both of them are singers. And there's one point in this sort of, you know, bizarre, gruesome, but really, really uh, enchanting film where in order to have sex with her boyfriend, she has her tail cut off. It's a fascinating, uh, more recent version of that.
0: We've made a splash, but there's a lot deeper to dive into when it comes to mermaids. So we'll be back to explore together after this. Johnji knows that water is critical to us all, especially if we like to run. I can personally say as a casual runner in the high desert environment of Moab, Utah, it would be impossible to hit the trails without the ability to rehydrate safely. The reality is that so many people worldwide still don't have access to clean, safe drinking water. And because Johnji aims to explore, connect, and give back by crafting comfortable, responsibly produced running apparel guided by the places we run and the people we meet, that also includes supporting the essentials, like better access to staying hydrated and healthy. For each collection Janji creates, inspired by a new country around the world, Janji partners with a local nonprofit in support of clean water programs. Because when we have more access to clean, drinkable water, it goes beyond feeling better in our bodies. We feel better in our communities too. So whether you're a casual jogger, training for a long distance, or just like to move your body outdoors, Janji's selection of active wear is meant to help you connect to your body, the outdoors, and the greater world around you. And that's some running apparel I can truly get behind. Right now, Sex Outside podcast listeners can get 15% off your next order of Johnji. Simply head to janji.com and use code SEXOUTSIDE at checkout. That's J-A-N-J-I dot com and use code SEXOUTSIDE for 15% off.
1: I mean, it kind of goes back to like when like Mermaids first featured in television and film.
0: If you thought Ben was the only one who had thoughts on how film and television has impacted and many times perpetuated our views on mermaids, think again. Gabrielle has a lot of insights on the way we as a society have leaned on specific identities when it comes to mermaids in the media.
1: You have people like Esther Williams, who did a lot of underwater swimming work in film and television, and then you also have in more recent years, uh, Daryl Hannah, who is really famous for her portrayal of Madison in Splash and then of course, Ariel from The Little Mermaid being one of the big staples of a lot of kids' first interactions with mermaids. And a lot of times these mermaids that they feature on these like media platforms are usually very skinny, white, like blonde or red hair, blue eyes, and then just kind of this romantic sensibility.
0: In listening to Gabrielle describe how mermaids are often portrayed, it's hard not to feel incredibly familiar to it. In fact, looking back in the recent past, I think it's safe to say that many of us would be challenged to find a mermaid that was presented to us in our childhood or adolescence that didn't fit that description to a pretty significant degree. And as Gabrielle will get to, this isn't just inequitable when it comes to representation of different races, genders, and other identities and lived experiences, but it also is incredibly prescriptive when it comes to body type which honestly was one of the very first things that had come to mind when we opened up this can of worms about mermaids for this episode. There's a lot we could potentially say about fat phobia and ableism when it comes to the traditional popular mermaid archetype. But we're fortunate enough that Oak Honey, a non-binary TikTok artist, was open to us sharing their wise thoughts instead, because they framed the need for rethinking mermaid bodies much better than we ever could.
3: So mermaids are fat. Mermaids are plus size. I'm uh, an artist, an illustrator most of the time And I mostly do character design and character development Which requires a lot of research Recently I've been designing mermaids Which has required a lot of marine life research And turns out It's really fucking cold underwater <laughs> And so most marine life That like has skin anyway That's similar to human skin Like you know, manatees and whales and things like that They have just such a thick layer of blubber To keep them warm And also fat reserves are just important for survival But yeah, mermaids would be fat And more specifically, mermaids would have, like, a realistic bodybuilder type body. Like, I'm not talking about the traditional bodybuilder, like, Dorito, 0% fat. But I'm talking about the real bodybuilders that have just so much muscle underneath and a lot of fat covering all that muscle up. So do with that what you will.
0: The good news is that things haven't remained completely stagnant in the way we see mermaids. In fact, Gabrielle was able to identify some ways that media is starting to diversify how mermaids can be, and why that matters.
1: The one thing that I can say that has challenged that ideology is, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Siren on Freeform, but I love the way that the mermaids were portrayed in that show in particular, because you not only have those stereotypical skinny mermaids, but you also have like mermen who get featured. You get mermaids of color who get featured in there as well. And it's such a varied mix of what I believe mermaids should represent. Because it's like, when you think about it, no two fish in the ocean are the same. And every fish has its own pattern, color scheme, behavior, social interaction with other species. And like getting to explore that and to make that so unique to whichever world you're trying to create in regards to your mer people can really diversify the narrative and can really make your kind of depiction of mer people stand out. And aside from Siren, you also have, um, if you want to go way, way back, uh, The 13th Year was a Disney Channel original movie that actually featured a merman as its main character. It felt kind of like a reverse Little Mermaid. It was like a teenage boy in high school was going through these changes and turns out that he was the son of a mermaid and he starts kind of going through this awkward stage of puberty.
0: Outside of the media, we know that mermaids have also been portrayed through oral and written histories, as Ben's been pointing out. But how much impact did that all have? It turns out, quite a lot. In fact, throughout time, mermaids have even been woven into systemic purity narratives, as well as our greater society.
2: Even though today mermaids are sort of seen as obviously fictional cutesy dragon type creatures in that, you know, they're in storybooks. It's important to keep in mind that for much of human history, people thought mermaids were real. And as I talked about before, there's various reasons for that. Of course, you know, just lack of knowledge, lack of exploration, knowledge about the world. But it was very much a thing that many people believed. And another interesting facet that sort of brings in the the gender and sexuality is that, as I mentioned before, the the mermaids were typically associated symbolically with fate and misfortune and, you know, the allure of the feminine and, of course, the, the sort of the dangerous side of that. But partly because of that, what you found was that the Roman Catholic Church characterized mermaids as being the dangers of the flesh right? So you would have carvings of mermaids in old churches. It's not because they're saying, hey, look at this cool mermaid. It's because the mermaid was a symbol of Satan. It was a symbol of the danger of succumbing to the temptations of the flesh. And in fact, when I was researching th- this topic uh, just a couple days ago, I came across a little factoid, which I hadn't seen before, which is that actually the term mermaid in the 1500s was used to refer to prostitutes. There was this strong association from, say, you know, 1400s through 1600s or so, that number one mermaids in some cases were real and or metaphorical, right? So not only was there this blurring of people who actually believed in the literal existence of mermaids, but it was then sort of metaphorically... Co opted by the church to represent the danger of sin as a reminder to parishioners not to succumb to the temptations of the flesh because a mermaid, though she may be beautiful, she will lead you to ruin.
0: So, to Ben's point, mermaids have been aligned with evil in some religions centuries back. But what about currently? How have things evolved? As our public notion of sexuality and gender has continued to expand, And as we don't see many mermaid statues collecting dust in cathedrals, how is the mermaid holding powerful symbolism today?
1: I mean, as far as like my own journey goes and like trying to go into the realm of like sexuality as a whole, I know a lot of people within the LGBT community actively thrive on that mermaid symbolism because it's like, you're not really bound by one world, if you will. Mermaids are technically a part of two worlds, ocean and land. You're not quite sure where you kind of belong in, but you are this creature that embodies the harmony between both. And with that being said, I feel like because of that whole aspect i feel like a lot of people within the lgbtqia community can really identify with the mythology and the lore of what more people represent that ideal of transformation that ideal of becoming your best self and trying to liberate from the norms of what society puts on you and i think in that respect within that space i think it really makes a difference i know quite a few mermen and mermaids within the LGBTQ community, and one of my really dear friends, my friend Kaylee, who is also a trans mermaid as well, and as we are in our garb or we're in our tails, we feel at our most feminine and at at our most confident. I try my best to be that voice for people who want to be within the professional scene, but aren't usually kind of considered the norm in regards to mermaids because everyone needs to see themselves represented in a way that is both beautiful and confident. And I wholeheartedly stand by that message through and through and try to express it in any way that I can.
2: And they're really good, by the way. (laughs) I was super impressed by the athleticism and the beauty and the grace. I just, I couldn't do that. I'd be drowning. I'd be this bobbing white lump at the top screaming and flailing.
0: As we've touched on so many different facets of mermaids in this episode, it only seemed right to turn our attention to the modern industry around it all. While Ben may not be cut out for professional mermaiding as an actor and athletic swimmer, Gabrielle spends much of her time mermaiding as her character Nymphia. That said, there's many more aspects to mermaiding than performance.
1: Oh, gosh, it's such a varied occupation because there are so many facets to like the mermaid world and the mermaid kind of career in general. You have people who are active performers. They do like birthday parties, corporate events. Weddings, renaissance fairs, there are so many things that you can perform in in, the, in terms of like mermaiding. I've also done like nightlife and nightclubs and such.
0: Nightclubs are actually one of the origins of much of the current day industry around this profession. And Ben, as you can imagine, has some quick history on it all.
2: One of the traditional and original mermaid shows was at Weeki Watch in Florida. Wiki Watchy is probably America's best-known sort of mermaid show. And it opened in 1947, and sort of famous for many things. It's a water park, but it's the mermaid show is their specialty. Originally, they didn't have tails, actually. They were just women who were good athletic swimmers who would do these graceful flips underwater. And originally, the mermaids were called aqua bells. So aqua meaning water, of course, bell being the beauty, the, the feminine sort of thing. And there were both male and female performers at the beginning, but the women were much more popular. (laughs) But what was interesting, and when you sort of dig a little deeper into it, was that there was this sort of sexualized aspect to it, because it wasn't just that the mermaids were swimming and doing flips and, you know, waving to kids, which they were, but there was also the sort of male gaze aspect, because you had these mermaids, they're behind glass, so there's this sort of, you know, metaphorical window through which you're seeing them. You know, sometimes, uh, you know, pretending they're not being seen right they're they're bathing they're you know they're doing these you know sensual feminine things and of course being seen in the process and so the female audience members many of them were probably thinking how cool it would be to actually be a mermaid right they're like oh the the freedom the the feral the the power and the men are thinking hey that's a hot mermaid right you know I wish I could get in there and a lot of the mermaids originally not only were they doing these flips and turns and these graceful things underwater, which is all beautiful in and of itself, but they were often framed with, uh, shall we say, phallic imagery. So the mermaids would, they ate a lot of bananas. They drank a lot of Coke from glass soda bottles very slowly and lovingly. You can you can guess where that went. As I recall the story, finally at some point it was like, you know, can we make them do apples now and then? Surely these mermaids don't only eat bananas Slowly and lovingly in profile.
0: Mermaid shows have been held at wiki since the late 1940s, and they're still going today, though it seems as though less bananas are involved. And mermaiding as a whole, as Gabrielle has been sharing through her own insights into the community, has evolved so much as our thoughts around what intentionality, inclusivity, and equity looks like, including through characters we're familiar with, like merfolk. And as it turns out, there are many, many ways to get involved in mermaiding these days, which has led to a huge opening for this community, from actors and makers to small business owners.
1: You can also run an Etsy store where you make like mermaid-themed things, like mermaid tops, tail-making is also a big one, accessories, crowns, things of that nature that kind of get the costuming and the look of a mermaid. And then you also have like mermaid photographers who will do like mermaid transformations. They'll take like regular people from just anywhere and then they'll transform them into a mermaid for like a really fun photo shoot or maybe like a surprise outing with friends. And it's just, I think the market of like the mermaid realm, if you will, is just so big and so varied. It's kind of hard to really explain how to kind of encapsulate it all into one thing. But. It just kind of shows how big and varied everything is because it's like there's not really one way to mermaid as a professional or to be a mermaid who makes a living creating mermaid themed things or mermaid content and such.
0: You probably get the idea by now, but mermaids hold a lot more than songs and secrets from the ocean floor. And the stories we've been both told and accepted about mermaids over centuries. They've evolved. But there's still so much more room for growth. And the way we'll continue to see an ever-expanding narrative is through listening to voices like Gabrielle's and asking questions about the long-standing narratives we've been so hooked on to begin with. And speaking of getting hooked, if you're leaving this episode feeling a little mer-curious, Gabrielle has some thoughts on what it means to join the greater mermaid community.
1: If you want to join in the mer-community, just bring what you have to the table. The mermaid community itself is such a safe space for all backgrounds, regardless of your race, gender, sexuality, religion, what have you. We do what we can to like make sure that everybody feels welcome and is able to hold their space within our community. And as a community, we should have this ideal of unity with everybody. And everybody within our realm is allowed to kind of share the floor and bring what they have and be themselves. And so if anybody out there who's listening might want to take a dive and just jump into the community head on, like, by all means, you are more than welcome to be a part of our world, if you will. (laughs)
0: Thank you so much to Gabrielle Rivera and Benjamin Radford for their time and insights for this episode. And an extra thanks to Okani for your thoughts on mermaid bodies. To see more of Gabrielle's underwater adventures as Nymphia the Nautilus mermaid, you can find her on Instagram at NautilusSeaNymph. And you can hear more from Ben Radford on his podcast, Squaring the Strange, which, funny enough, recently released their own episode all about mermaids if you can't get enough seaworthy folklore. And as always, there's plenty of links in our show notes to continue your research too, so make sure to check all that out. Also, don't forget, you can catch full episodes of Sex Outside every other week on Thursdays, and on the opposite weeks, you can hear brand new nature quickies, which are short, 10-minute dives into specific, practical topics about our bodies and the outdoors. So stay tuned to catch a new one next Thursday. In the meantime, please consider supporting the show by leaving us a 5-star review on Apple Podcasts, making sure you're subscribed, or by sharing this episode with a friend you think might like it. We also have a pretty great merch shop online. There are shirts, stickers, even underwear, and it all supports the show. To see what it's all about, head over to sexoutsidepodcast.com shop. Thanks again to our sponsor, John G. Music is by The Wild Wild, Timber, and Wave Crush. I'm Laura Borshevsky. Thanks so much for joining us. Until next time.